Yo, 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 yo. This is Tyler. This is Danny. And this is another episode of Fried Squirms, where we're here to get stoned and talk about horror movies. And I'm looking forward to both of those things today. It's a great day already. You know that, Danny? I agree, man. We've had a, a pretty eventful day prior to even recording. I just got my Series X. Oh, that's exciting, man. If all you out there don't know, like, it's hard to get your fucking hands on a next-gen console right now. Like, this was a month of fucking trying, because bots are buying this shit out in, like, seconds on some of the websites. So. Yeah, it blew my mind when you told me that, too. So I'm happy. It's not horror-related, but I'm fucking happy. I'll play horror games on it eventually, then you guys will hear about it. So. Yeah, it'll be adjacent, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's get stoned. Let's get into our green hits. As always, we brought each other some joints. I know that you told me this was Apple Fritter. Now, what else can you tell me about it? All right, so this one, once again, we picked it up at Flower, local dispensary here in town. And this strain is a 50-50 hybrid. And the parent strains said it's the classic sour apple mixed with the animal cookie strains. This one did make the High Times 2016's World's Strongest Strains list. So that being said, the flavors on this, it's noted that you'll have apple, fruity, herbal, sweet, and vanilla flavors. And pretty much the same on the aromas. This one clocks in right at like 25%. I think it can get up to like 28%. So it is pretty high THC content strain. Before even lighting on it, just sort of sticking it in my mouth and sucking on a little bit. I'm Ooh. getting a little bit of the apple and a little bit of the more herbal. So Nice. For you, I brought some Pink Animal Crackers B. Animal Crackers is Indica Dominant Hybrid, Animal Cookies, and Pink 2.0. Nice which I hadn't heard of the Pink 2.0 before. So, like, it's, I don't know, man. Like, I'm looking at its genetics right now, and there's some things in its genetic line that I recognize, but it's one of those fucking newer strains that's made up of a lot of oh, yeah. newer shit. You know what I mean? Like, it's got Predator Pink in there. I don't know what the fuck Predator Pink is. Lemon Alien Dog, I can guess. That's going to be what, like, Lemon Kush and Chem Dog. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Tahoe Alien. Wow. Yeah, there's all sorts of fucking shit way back up in its genetics. So, I don't know. Kind of peppery, right? For sure. <laughs> like, that was the first thing I'd noted to you. It was like, man, this tastes very peppery. But it's exciting because I really haven't had many strains that have this particular note of pepper. And it's clocking in at just a touch under 24%. Oh, ah, shit, so. still. It's... I don't know. I'm excited. Let's fire these up. And then as we fire these up, Let's also get into the guts and bolts of this week's feature, The Midnight Meat Train. God, that sounds dirty, doesn't it? <laughs> guts and bolts. All right, guts and bolts. The who and what went in the making of this movie. Spoiler free to start. We got spoilers coming up a little bit later. We actually get in and talk about this flick. But to start off, our spoiler free setup for The Midnight Meat Train. Bradley Cooper is a photographer who wants to capture the true heart of the city and instead ends up possibly capturing a serial killer on film and decides to look into it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That's uh, letting off a little bit light, but I don't want to get into the spoiler, 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 spoiler. Exactly, because we'll get on into that in just a little bit, but... It's maybe not as slashery as it seems. Good point. I'll say that much. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. Nice, well... Of course, from week to week, we do like to talk about the people who go into making the film and actors and actresses in front of the cameras. And this week, 
our director is a gentleman named Yochai Katmura, and this is his first English-speaking directorial film. He's known for a lot of Japanese films, of course, but mm -hmm. a few of those titles, which really surprised me because I own at least one of them. And the first one I'm going to name is a film called Versus. That's the one I own. He's also the director on the films Alive, the film Azumi, Battlefield Baseball. He was actually a producer on that, but he went on to direct Sky High, Godzilla Final Wars. He's also responsible for such films as Lupin the Third, which is a live action film from the anime and from the manga. And he's I also think from the old stories. I like, think you're right. Like Lupin is like an old French character, I think. Yeah, it goes Not way super back. old, but like it still goes well, like in late eighteen hundreds, maybe. I think you're right. Yeah. A couple other ones of note are the films Downrange, which I believe is still on Shutter. The film Nightmare Cinema. He did the Mash It segment and the 2020, The Doorman. All right. We have writers, a couple of gentlemen on this. The story was based off of the short story by Clive Parker of the same name. And Jeff Bueller helped with the screenplay. And Mr. Bueller, he's got some pretty cool credits to his name as well. Bueller. Yeah, Bueller. He's known for writing the segments J is for Jesus on ABCs of Death Part Two. He also helped develop and he did three episodes for the Night Flyers television series back in uh, 2018. He's also responsible for the screenplay of Pet Cemetery. That's a 2019 version. Jacob's Ladder, which is the 2019 version as well. Still haven't watched that. I remember being intrigued by that trailer too, and I still have not yeah. gotten around to it. He did last year's The Grudge and the upcoming, it's untitled, but it has been announced that there is a Pet Cemetery prequel. Oh. Yeah, so we'll see. That's it. We'll see. We'll see. Oh. We'll see. I don't know if I'm quite ready to comment on that. All right. Our cinematographer is a gentleman named Jonathan Sella. And Jonathan has some pretty cool credits just as well. He's known for helping on the John Wick series, believe it or not, Transformers The Last Night and Deadpool Part 2. He's known for collaborating with directors John Moore and David Leach. So if you're familiar with some of those guys' film works, uh, you'll be familiar with his work as well. A couple of other things of note, which I thought was interesting. He helped with the film Powder Blues, actually one I have seen. He also helped with Max Payne, which I thought was really interesting. 2004's Soul Plane and The Girl Next Door. Oh, shit. I was like, eh, One okay. of those is good. I'll yeah. leave it up to you to decide which one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hold off because uh, I think we both know which one. <laughs> All right. Moving forward, we have editor Toby Yates. He's known for editing the films The Dead Girl, the film Lila and Eve, and the TV series Shameless back in 2016. The music was composed by Johannes Kilbilk, and he's known for the films Rage, the film Pathology, and the film The Glassblower. And Robbie C. Williamson also helped with the films Pathology, Small Boy, and the documentary Wildness. All right, we have... Quite a number of special effects teams on this. I'll breeze through them really quick. Starting off with the visual effects, we have Furious FX, Luma Pictures, Look Effects, Barbed Wire, Subpar Picks, and we have Proof Special Effects for the pre-visualization and WM Creations. They help with these special makeup prosthetics in the film. The producers on this were Clive Barker, Jorge Saralegu, Eric Reed, Richard Wright, Tom Rosenberg and Gary Locasey. Production companies were Lakeshore Entertainment, Lionsgate, Midnight Picture Show, and Green Street Films. 
The distributor was Lakeshore International for the 2008 non-United States theatrical release, and Lionsgate helped with the 2008 United States theatrical release. It had a premiere date on July 19th, 2008 at Canada's Fantasia Film Festival. And here in the States, it had a limited release. I read, this is a little bit of trivia, but man, it's kind of fucked up. It was only released to like a little over a hundred cinemas. Yeah. And they were mostly like dollar or $2 theaters, the discount theaters. Mm -hmm. I used to go to those a lot because <laughs> there was one in my hometown. But I was like, man, that's kind of messed up. So it'll make sense once I start reading some of these numbers. All right, so the budget was an estimated $15 million. It grossed worldwide $3.5 million, mostly because one of the distributors overseas picked it up. It went straight to DVD, so it didn't have any luck in terms of box office, which Clive Barker has quite a bit to say about that, rightfully yeah, it so. it sounds like there was a lot going on behind the scenes. Yeah, there was somebody at Lionsgate. It was one of the, I think he was an executive producer on this. Guy named, his last name is Drake, but they had some outs because that guy wasn't big on this film. Yeah. He wasn't big on this. So this is the section to get into it. From what I understand, there was a combination of like two things going on with this movie. He wasn't big on this and was instead trying to shift budget and focus away to some of the flicks that he had yeah. a bigger interest in, I such as the, the strangers mm -hmm. to go along with that. The studio was also pushing for this to be changed, to be more marketable to a wider audience. Yeah. Cause this is not for everybody. That's for sure. Right, and I think some of the changes the studio wanted made it in. Wow, that's interesting. Because you know where the ending in the short story goes. Right. And the movie leaves a lot more questions. I agree, I agree. I think they try to play up the slasher aspect, I guess, is what I'm getting at. That's a good point. That's a very good point. They take some liberties. Which I think explains a couple of the scenes that we'll get to later. Oh, for sure. And like I said, we'll clear up all the in-betweens. But it wasn't... Lionsgate that put it in only like a hundred some odd theaters. From what I understand, because of these other issues, it was Clive and the director that as a protest ah. did the made sure that only the bare minimum happened. Gotcha. Wow. They're so like, like fuck you. if you guys are gonna fuck us, then fuck you. Yeah. Like we're gonna make sure that only the bare minimum happens as far as like release I mean, of this movie. You can't blame them, man, because they did get fucked in the end, if you think about it. And then there it. was some fan campaigns to be like, well, even though they're only doing the bare minimum, let's still try to flood the bare minimum with extra money no just kidding. to show Lionsgate where Allegiance actually lies. Yeah, because this is during a time period with horror films, because I know we've talked about it. This is just a real quick tangent. This is during the time period when like Saw and the French Extreme was coming out. So I could see them maybe wanting to temper some expectations with some of these horror films mm -hmm. coming out stateside. Yeah, I don't think they were ready to go that far and do it. <laughs> but I think studio involvement definitely explains a couple hey, yeah, scenes that, that I'll go into huh. in more depth in the next section. Interesting, for sure. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> there we go. That's, once again, we don't know all the details. No, no, but. no, it's just what we read. All right, so this film does have a tagline, and the tagline I have is the most terrifying ride you'll ever take. A little bit on the nose. Yeah, well, Not so, bad. eh, fine. Yeah, yeah, doesn't bother anything. All right, going into the cast of the Midnight Meat Train, we have actually a pretty solid cast. 
some pretty oh, yeah. familiar faces. Leading off, we've already mentioned Bradley Cooper. He plays the role of Leon Kaufman. And uh, as if he needs an introduction right now, but going back a little bit, dude. At this time, like... He was still kind of an unknown. He was somewhat. kind of an unknown pretty boy. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Somewhat of an unknown. But I think about some of the films which I had seen him in, maybe didn't know him by name quite then, but a film I highly recommend is Wet Hot American Summer. Mm. So funny. He was also in, of course, I the Hangover movies. he was in Wet Hot. His scene and his character might be some of the funniest shit in the film. It's pretty um, interesting. Wedding Crashers is probably what I first yeah. remember him I would say sure likewise, in. likewise. That's probably the first thing I was, uh, oh yeah, I know who this dude is. And then he got into the Hangover movies. I know he's a part of the uh, Marvel comic universe as well. Oh yeah, because he's fucking Rocket Raccoon. Like yeah, and then he's done. You know, he's done his bits with rom coms and stuff like that too. Silver Linings Playbook and stuff like that. So, and then he did the film, well, of course, and he just killed got, it like, recently. Yeah, A Star Is Born just got him all the acclaim. So, yeah, a film I haven't seen, but I have been curious about. It's the film Limitless. I am curious about Limitless that. Limitless was fun. I watched that. I thought it was fun. I'm glad they turned it into a TV series, even though I haven't watched the series, but it okay. seemed like that's probably the better medium for that story. I can see that. Yeah, I was like, the premise sounded interesting enough. I just haven't seen it. A couple of other films of note are American Hustle and the American uh, War Biopic, American Sniper. Ooh, don't want to get into that one. <laughs> All right. Next person we have is Leslie Bibb. She's actually an actress we've talked about before because we talked about her way back on episode 44 when we reviewed Trick or Treat That's for right. our Halloween episode that year. Yeah. Put out the same year, even though Trick or Treat, I believe, was filmed two or three years previous. I think you're right. So a few things of note for her. She started off like with some small bit parts and such things as like private parts, huh? coincidentally enough. But then... She became a little bit more well-known. I think probably people recognize her as Christine Everhart in Iron Man and Iron Man 2. I'm trying to think uh, of some films. Carly Bobby and Talladega Nights. Yeah, dude. Come on. Now, I love the movie Wrist Cutter's Love Story. That's a great she's film. she's in that. So. I do remember that. She was in Law Abiding Citizen. That was another one I wanted That's to make That's a real note fucking of. fun movie. That was the first film I'd actually watched on Blu-ray, surprisingly oh, enough. Oh, no shit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot to say about that, but that's not, you know, for this podcast. I think mine was Inception. Oh, no kidding. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. That's a good one, dude. Uh, let's see. A few things of note, too. She was in uh, The Babysitter, which I've actually seen, and its sequel, The Babysitter Killer Queen, which is really cool. And it looks like she was in Netflix's superhero series, Jupiter's Legacy, as well. All right. Moving forward. This is what I was telling you in the car. Another one of those coincidences that keep happening. All right, I'm moving into actress oh, Brooke Shields. Wait, real quick, oh, with yeah, Leslie yeah, Bibb. She was fucking Megan on the league. Oh yeah, I know that yeah, we yeah, both yeah. fucking love the league. That's funny. I'm surprised we didn't mention that. Yeah, she was Megan. So funny. All right, so Brooke Shields. Once again, one of those actresses. As if she needs an introduction, she goes way back to. I mean, she was a child model. She starred in such things as like Pretty Baby. She was in or infamously in the Blue Lagoon back in 1980. Uh, which also, first thing I, I ever saw her in. Yeah, she was like 14, 15, yeah. something like that. They uh, used to play the slightly cut version of Blue Lagoon on TV quite a bit, actually. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but that's... Do you remember that? Like, they used to play Blue Lagoon a they lot did. on TV. They really did. 
Uh, let's see, a few other things of note. She was in The Muppets Take Manhattan back in 84. A film, dude, like I said, it's a coincidence. It keeps rearing its head. Oh, goddamn freaked, isn't it? She isn't freaked. She plays the TV talk show host Sky Daily in the film. I highly recommend the film. All right, she was also 1996's Freeway. She's been in such things as The Bachelor. She was in the Hannah Montana movie. I didn't know that. Oh. <laughs> we can't forget Suddenly Susan. Yeah, that's a good point, man. TV show. I mean, 93 episodes. Yo, yeah. Let's see. She was in 20 episodes of Lipstick Jungle back in 2018 and 19. 19 episodes as Mrs. Goodman, the voice of, and Mr. Pickles, which is really cool. And uh, 14 episodes of Jane the Virgin back in 2018 19. So, yeah, quite a bit of roles in television among film as well. All right, Vinnie Jones. Gentlemen, I'm surprised we haven't talked about a lot more often given but he plays the role of Mahogany in the film. Do they ever actually say that his name is Mahogany in the movie? They do. One time. Oh, shit. Okay. One time. One time. One time. <laughs> All right. Here's something interesting about Mr. Jones. Before he even got into acting, he was a professional footballer in England, and he happened to play for my favorite soccer team, football team, and that's Chelsea. He was a notoriously a thug out there on the field. Yeah. Like He gave zero fucks. There was a story where he was playing with Chelsea in the FA Cup, and they were playing, it might have been Wimbledon, one of those teams, but he literally shut down their striker. Like, he went in early on a challenge. It fucked with that guy the entire game, shut him down. He was ruthless. So, that being said, when he did move on to acting, he starred in such films as Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which is probably the first place I'd seen him. If not, it was definitely Snatch from 2000. See, I didn't... I saw those a lot later, so the first thing I saw him in is uh, he was Sphinx in Gone in 60 Seconds. Mm. That's cool. Yeah, he was also a part of The Mean Machine from 2001 and Juggernaut Next Men, The Last Stand from 2006. I mean, he's also done stuff in television as well. I keep. Have you ever watched Mean Machine? I haven't. I keep meaning to because it's just the football remake of The Longest huh. Yard. Oh. And I fucking love The Longest Yard. Yeah. Like, I love both versions. I was going to say, both Yard. versions are good. <laughs> I didn't know. I don't think I've ever seen it. But yeah, just looking at this, I might have to change that. All right. And uh, a couple of those roles on television, he starred as Sebastian Morin in the television series Elementary and Brick in the television series Arrow. All right. We have Roger Bart. He plays the role of Jurgis in the film. And uh, this gentleman, actually, man, it surprised the shit out of me because of one of the films that he's in. And I'm like, oh, dude, I definitely recognize him from that. So with that being said, the film that I remember him from, or at least first recognize him when he starred as Stuart in Hostel Part 2. He was also in... Uh, oh, wow. Yo. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was like, say, like, I wouldn't have known this was him, but I would have been very familiar with him as being the singing voice of young Hercules. I, I know. What a contrast. In the 97 Hercules movie. <laughs> That is so funny, Because man. he's a fucking Tony Award winning Broadway star. Yeah, he stars in a lot of stage <laughs> You're shows. You're a good man, Charlie Brown? Like, come on. That's some good shit right there. Dude, some of his other film roles include uh, U.S. Attorney and American Gangster. He played Dr. Beecher in Harold and Kamar Escape from Guantanamo Bay. He was also in Law Abiding Citizen as Brian Brigham. He was in the film Excision, which I'm really looking forward to watching. He's in the films Internet Famous and Ghost Light. He's got a couple of films in pre-production. And yeah, television, 
quite a few things. He was in Desperate Housewives as George Williams for 16 episodes that spanned from like 2005 all the way to 2012. A few other things of note, he was in 30 Rock. He was also in Political Animals, Modern Family, a series of unfortunate events, and more recently, Good Trouble, which is kind of cool. And he was also part of Elementary as well. All right, gentlemen, we've actually talked about before, which is really cool. And I'm talking about Ted Raimi. He plays the role of Randall Cooper. He's like one of the tourists. It doesn't really have a big part. But he was in episode 36 when we reviewed Candyman, brother of Sam Raimi. God damn it. I love whenever I see Ted Raimi pop on Champ. screen doing anything. Yeah, it is also awesome. So those Evil Dead films, he's always one of the deadites, right? Or like you see him from the back typically. He was Ted Hoffman in the Spider-Man trilogy. You might have seen him in Xena, Warrior Princess, and Hercules, A Legendary Journey. Dude, Dark Man, Army of Darkness, The Grudge, Drag Me to Hell, Oz the Great and Powerful. And then uh, let's say he did his some voice roles in Invader Zim and Code Monkeys in the video game Evil Dead Regeneration. So he's all over the map, which is really cool, dude. If we even had a podcast dedicated to the Raimis, I think we'd be good for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, we're not doing that. No, 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 no. But if somebody else wants to, there you go. You can credit us later. All right. We have Peter Jacobson who plays the role of Otto. He's like the diner cook in the film. Oh, right, right. Yep. All right. A few things of note from him. He was in the film Private Parts from 97. It's a pretty decent film. Um, he's probably best known these days as Dr. Taub from Taub. Taub? Yeah. Wow, I have not said his name in a long-ass time. You know how long it's been since I talked about House? Anyway, wow, he's I, on House. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. Yeah, he was in uh, 2006's Failure to Launch. I think more recently he was in the film The Goldfinch and Violet from this year. He said done a lot of television. Wow, I didn't realize he made it on the 96 episodes of House. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, he was more recently Rabbi Jacob or Jakob Kessner in The Fear of the Walking Dead, which is really cool. All right, moving forward, we have Barbara Eve Harris. She plays the role of Detective Lynn Hadley. And a few things of note from her, she was FBI agent Felicia Lang on both the television series and movie Prison Break. And a few other things of note, uh, she was in such things as like Knott's Landing, Party of Five, The West Wing, CSI Miami. She was on ER, Brothers and Sisters, Criminal Minds. So a lot of procedural shows, essentially. A few movie roles of note, Supernatural from 2016 and People Like Us from 2012, which is kind of neat. Okay. Moving forward, I have Tony Curran who plays the role of Driver, which I know that's kind of misleading when you say Driver because I think of cars, but he's pretty much the train conductor. But when you look at this gentleman's film credits, really interesting. It shows that he's appeared in such things as Underworld Evolution, Doctor Who in Roots, and the Netflix historical epic Outlaw King. But when you look at who he's played in films, that's where it really gets interesting. Well, let me, I want to point out one thing real quick, especially because I did not recognize him in this movie. And like my jaw is dropped right now realizing who the fuck he is. His role in Doctor Who I saw that. is one of the most fucking... Just like open the fucking waterworks, heart wrenching wow. moments in the entire series where one of the doctor's companions wants to try to change something and like they get to meet Vincent Van Gogh and she knows like his ending. Mm. And so she convinces the doctor 
to bring him forward in time so that he gets to see one of his like art expos at the Louvre. Ah, oh, gotcha. To be like, look, you're worth it. Like, don't kill yourself. Exactly. That's pretty, and like yeah, that's holy shit, him like Tony Current kills it. That's awesome. With just like showing the emotion of seeing all of Van Gogh's huh. art, like. Yeah, being respected. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And like, it's hard not to just be like, uh, all the feels. <laughs> Dude, he's also Rodney Skidder as the Invisible Man in the Believe It, Extraordinary Gentleman. That's right. Yeah, it was really cool. He was also in Del Toro's Blade 2 as Priest, and I already mentioned Underworld Evolution as Marcus, which is Dude, really I'm cool. not going to lie, he's been in a lot of fucking movies that I really like. <laughs> Dude, yeah, he's in a ton of shit. 13th Warrior? Dude. Yeah. I mean, come on. Beowulf and Grendel, which is really neat. X-Men First Class as a man in black agent. He was in Thor as Boar. He went uncredited, though. Oh, shit. Yeah, well, that's cool. Television. Good for him. I wouldn't recognize him from the first Thor. It's been so long since I watched him. I don't know there. Oh, he is in, like, three episodes of Sons of Anarchy. I remember who he is. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Nice. All right. Moving forward, I have Alan Maldonado. This gentleman, he plays the role of, I think he was like the gang leader. It says he's a lead gangbanger. <laughs> you already mentioned that. That movie sounds dirty. That sounds even dirtier. <laughs> right. Okay. So why am I bringing him up? He's got some interesting credits to his that, name. He's been doing good for himself lately, hasn't he? He really has. I'm just going to go... A little bit back, not way, way back, but he was in Friday After Next as one of the juveniles, juvenile number three. That was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, in Live Free or Die Hard, which is really cool. He was also in such things as The Grind and The Ugly Truth. And then, you know, moving forward a little bit, he was in Straight Out of Compton as Tone. He was in Smart Ass. He was in Superfly, Project Power, lots of television as well. Another one of those guys is in, in a ton a of stuff. a recurring role on Blackish. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Main cast on Last OG. He was Young Lil in Black Jesus for two episodes as well. Dude, that show is so fucking funny. <laughs> Sorry for cussing a lot, but that show is so funny, man. <laughs> yeah, he was in The Shield, Judging Amy, a celebrity death match as Lil Wayne. Oh, that's fucking funny. That is really funny. All right. Oh, no, I'm going to bring him up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Dan Callahan, he plays the other tourist on the train with Ted Raimi's character, but he plays Troy Televesky. I don't even think they say his name, just Troy. But a few things of note from him. He was in the film Pathologist, Chip Bentwood. He was in the Mothman Prophecies, which is really cool, a CJ. He was also in The Ugly Truth, and he was a writer on the film College, which is really neat. All right, we have Quentin Jackson. What the fuck is Rampage Jackson doing? They never say his name, but he goes by Guardian Angel. Of course he does. Um, the only thing that I can really say of no, I mean, he was in the A-Team, which is really cool with Bradley Cooper. Yeah. But, I mean, he's a UFC fighter. That's yeah. primarily where I know him from. That's he is a character. Where people know where he dude, know him from. Dude, what a nut job. I still like him as a fighter, even though, you know, he gets his head banged around a good bit. But, <laughs> you know, better him than me. All right. A few other people of note that I have in the film. We have Nora, who plays Erika Sakake. And a few things of note are from her. She's actually pretty interesting. Her name is Nori Sato, actually. But she was in the films Hellgate. She was also in the film Judas in Kuro. She was a part of a television series called Nazu no Tenkusei. It's really cool. She was also part of Tokyo MPD from Zero to Hero. A couple of other Japanese shows. So 
There's a few things of note there. We have uh, Stephanie May. She plays a role of Lee Cooper, which is Ted Ramey's wife on the train. A few things of note from her. She was in various sketches on Late Night with Conan O'Brien from 2003 and all the way through to five. She was also a part of the Ugly Truth movie. She was also in The Lincoln Lawyer. And more recently, she was in Girls, Girls, Girls. So that pretty much rounds out cast and crew. You gave us a brief setup of what the film entails. Definitely have to give you warnings in this film. Holy cow. Uh, it's pretty bloody. Whoa, boy. Gory, pretty violent. Bloody. Yep, violent. There's some sexual stuff going on in this film at times. Uh, language, mild spoiler, but needed for the warnings. Cannibalism. Yes, for sure. There's some body part stuff that happens. There's some oh, yeah, gross. Mild body horror. Yeah, there's body horror amongst other body stuff, <laughs> which we'll get into. Vast conspiracy. Yes, yes, yes. There's... I don't know how much one is it. No, there's maybe not so much. I'll get into it later. And if just hearing the name, the Midnight Meat Train inspires you to read the short story. Oh, yes, please do. Uh, Cosmic Horror. Yes, 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 yes. 100%. That's only hinted at in this. Absolutely. But yes, totally agree. That's where I was kind of treading. I was like, I don't know how much I want to get into that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Yeah, let's stop dancing around it. We'll get into how the Midnight Meat Train made us squeal. God, that sounds dirty. Dirty boys. <laughs> how does that make you squeal? All right, here we go. Midnight Meat Train. I guess we'll start off at the beginning. What's your history with this? Honestly, I think I've only seen it one time proper before going into this episode. And that was probably back, I know it was before I moved up here. I was, I was probably like 2010, 2011, something like that. Okay. So it's been a little while. I saw it twice before the two times before recording this. Both times right after reading the short story. I don't remember when I got Clive Barker's Books of Blood for the first time, but like I remember reading through it and being like, then looking it up on Wikipedia and finding out, oh, all of oh, these nice. stories, like so many of the stories in the Books of Blood have been adapted to. It's wild when you think about it. Yeah. It uh, makes either sense. made for TV horror or actual like full on movies. Yeah. And then whenever that first time was, it would have probably been around 2010-ish, maybe 2012-ish. Uh, no, earlier than 20, maybe like 20, yeah, probably about 2010. It was streaming on Netflix, and yeah, so I watched sense. it, and then ooh, I think it was only like two or three years ago, Okay, I reread a good chunk of the Books of Blood, and after I reread it, I was like, oh, I should watch that movie again, yeah. and I watched it again, nice. which leads to the other thing that we were both kind of mentioning before the show. Even though it was only a couple of years ago that I watched it the last time, I forgot a shit ton about this movie. <laughs> no, and there's quite a bit. I was like, wow. I was kind of jarred by it. I'm like, whoa, this movie's pew, whoa. And I think that that kind of makes sense for this movie. I think ultimately it's not a great movie. It's not great, but it's honestly, it's I, fun. Think, I think it's a lot better than I remembered it being. Yeah. I think it's better than I remembered it being, but it's also, it feels uneven to me. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. Which I think in some cases actually works for it, but is also probably what keeps it from being a truly great movie. Right. I think this one, given who it's written by and given who is in the film now, like knowing who the people are in the film now, 
It's like, I'd say give it another decade or so. It'll probably say, have a decent following. I think its cult status is only going to grow. I think so as well. The more people start to catch on, and especially like so with the names attached, mm -hmm. it's like, whoa, okay. I mean, at some point, somebody's going to be like, oh, I fucking love A Star is Born. Let me go back into... <laughs> Bradley, Bradley Cooper's, Cooper. yeah. I'm like, what? Midnight Meat Train, what is that? Was this some kind of softcore? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like the early sliced alone. Oh, man. Yeah. Italian Stallion. David Coveney was guilty of some Red Shoe Diaries. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, though. Like I said, I'm not surprised that I forgot so much about it, though, man. at the end of the day, because there's a lot of movies that are better Oh, yeah. There's plenty of movies we've done that are better. There's plenty of movies that we've done that, that are, are worse. worse. And that's no discredit. It's just them the facts. One of the first things, though, that I'm surprised that I completely forgot was Leslie Bibb. Exactly. Of course, you can't help but remember Vinnie Jones. He's plastered all over the freaking cover. Mm -hmm. And then Bradley Cooper, for obvious reasons as well. Yeah, that, but... that's always been one of my little trivia, like, hey, did you guys know Bradley Cooper was in a horror movie? No, Not only that, but it's based off of Clive Barker's mm -hmm. short story on top of it. So you kind One of... One of the kings. Dude, yes. The more and more that we're reviewing his films and the more I'm reading his stories, I'm like, dude. I mean, he's a big name, but still people are sleeping on him. Also, from what I understand, the director, dude, kind of a Barker fanboy. Yeah, and I can see it. It makes sense. I think he managed to get some of the good... Barker feel into it despite maybe them being fucked around with by the studio yeah and, you know that's one of those things we've talked about time and time before too is when you have studio interference whether it's big or small it's going to change things like this is going to kind of jump right into it and jump to like a midway point in the movie and it's going to sound weird unless you've read a bit of Barker but he probably had to fight to keep the ass eating in and it feels totally Barker <laughs> it's, I, I'm going to preface it this way. When I say the word funny, I don't always mean like, haha, laugh out funny. I just mean sometimes it's just, it's just a coincidence, mm -hmm. it's strange, it's odd, whatever. But there's some things I've noticed in this film too, thematically, and it makes sense given who wrote it mm -hmm. and giving, you know, the director is a fan of, it makes sense that some of these things are in the film. Like, speaking of which, one thing that stood out to me, it's pretty obvious, but there's a scene with Bradley Cooper in the diner where he's wanting a block of tofu made. And I'm like, you don't just throw that in there just for shits and giggles. It's like Clive Barker's a vegan. Yep. It's like, okay, that makes sense. The so, ass eating makes sense. <laughs> well, for multiple reasons. I mean, Clive does not shy away from sex in his work at all. Mm -mm. I mean, he's all about BDSM and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I meant to look it up, and it's still kind of towards the beginning of the movie anyway. Did you look up to see if the paintings that were hanging up in the art gallery, was that all Clive? Because I've seen some of his many, art. I've seen his artwork, and it looked similar to what I've seen from him. I'm wondering, I know this is a huge spoiler, but we're already there. And I wonder if it's the Dick paintings in the gallery. Yeah, yeah, I think those are Clive. That's what I think. Yeah. It, like, if any of those were, it, those were it. Yeah, I would imagine because it's pretty obvious. Like, whoa! But I've the thing is, I've seen some of Clive's art before, and I was like, I'm it, it pretty makes sure that's his style. Like, I was gonna say, yeah, the style fits. Mm -hmm. It definitely fits. Makes sense. But it's cool. It's like another cool homage or interjection of his works onto film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Uh, some really cool things of note. Oh, here's something, dude. 
second time through, this is the advantage, once again, of getting to watch these films twice, is the opening sequence. Your first time through, which is really quick. You don't know who these people are. Well, you assume it's mahogany, right? Absolutely, because there's no other reason not to think that. And even my first time watching it last night, not my time this morning doing notes, I still assumed it was mahogany. Yeah, but that was one of the things early on, the second time through that jumped out. I was like, oh, this is really cool. So how I like to do it, you know, I try to break the film down in acts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I labeled the first act as the beginning is the end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like tricky bastards. Another thing that I thought was clever going into it, if that wasn't obvious, is the first person you see on screen up in your face is Bradley Cooper. So it's almost like a segue of, all right, here's a train real quick sequence. You see somebody chopping up. You assume it's probably Vinnie well, Jones. And not just that. And the title card. It's completely bookended because then the next person you see is Megan. Dude, that's what I'm saying. So there's a lot of things that are lining up in this film that are pointing. But it's not a live Megan. It's a dead Megan. It's interesting. As in it's her photograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, man. There's little clues that they give you. It doesn't make sense at first, but that second time through, it's like, oh, dude. It's they're... a completely. I like it. Very, very immaculately bookended. It really is. It's really story. cool, man. Which, okay, we already hinted at this in our warning section. And I am, frankly, jealous of you that you recently reread this short story because I did not give myself enough time this weekend, and I wanted to. Because I really like this short story. It's good. It's really good. The other thing the book ending does, for those who know about the Fathers of New York, is it sets up the cosmic horror aspect of this. Because by bookending it with his eventual fate, you realize that he never has any agency to move outside past it. Oh, no doubt. In the story. He's kind of destined for it. There's some clever things that they do in this film that spell that out if you're paying attention mm -hmm. to it. In the, like I said, the advantage of watching the second time through, it makes a lot more sense. There's little things he says too, like for instance, when he has his meeting with Susan Hoff, played by Brooke Shields. One of my notes is, you know, the Dick Art, of course, and his meeting with her. But she's asking him what he's trying to do. And he's basically or summarizing like he's trying to capture the city. He says, like, I'm trying to capture the heart of it. He said, that's my goal. That's my dream. Which is interesting because that's kind of a tie-in to the original story somewhat because that guy has a love-hate relationship with the city. Right. And then almost immediately after his meeting and whatnot, he has these little, what I wrote down as like dream messages. He has these real quick flashes in his dreams of his fate, his ultimate mm -hmm. fate. He just doesn't know it yet. So that lends to the cosmic horror approach that I thought was interesting. You're not in control of your own destiny. There's way bigger things happening. That's exactly how I read it the second time through. And as we've pointed out in other movies that are cosmic horror and or cult-based, like Hereditary, for instance, yeah, yeah. often by the time the protagonists are in the scheme at all, it's too late. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, way too late. Wicker Man, another good another example. Another prime example, yeah. You're By right. The, Cole, him showing up on that island, that was it's it. already done for. It was a done, he sealed his fate. And so this is another one of those movies when it comes down to it. And that's kind of some of the explanation you have to use for the some of the more supernatural stuff later on. I agree. But if you're familiar with the genre and you recognize the book ending, 
you're like, oh, this whole movie in a way is his prison. Yeah. And this is his fate, you know? It's just, it is what it is. He doesn't realize it until too late for him. Also, at some point, I do have another just half-baked theory on what's going on here that I'll go into, but let's yeah, lay yeah, out yeah. the whole movie first. Okay. All right, so, cool. <laughs> uh, so this, one of his first three messages, he gets like those snippets, those flashes, but it wakes him up at like one in the morning and he goes into the city because uh, Brooke Shields tells him that she wants something that's a lot more tangible, not just fluff. You know, she wants to see what happens after the nasty guy touches the business guy. And so he follows these uh, thug guys down into the subways and they're starting to assault the Asian model. Mm -hmm. And he happens to have the high road, (laughs) points out the camera and those guys, you know, as the English say, they bugger off. Dude, that was some quick fucking thinking with the security camera. I was like, that was smooth. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that until he did that. I was like, oh, damn, got him. That was yeah. a fucking cool that fucking was good. move. The second time through, this is something I noted. I don't know if you paid attention to this. I don't know if this is a theme because I'm not like heavily into some of Barker's works quite mm-hmm. yet. But I was like, there's a little signs of infidelity in this film. Like that model. And it's not necessarily his fault. It's just he doesn't negate it either. He's not denying it. Like he gets kissed by the model. And then, you know, Brooke Shields is like squeezing on his leg and stuff. I'm not sure if it's infidelity so much as the concept of flesh and like point. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like the pleasures of the flesh I can see play that. into that. I can see that being more of that that side of the theme. And the closer yeah. he gets pulled into this, the more that gets represented in different ways. Uh, it, at first it's just the the grab on the yeah. leg. That's like, then he gets think about kissed. the writer. Think about the writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it makes sense. But uh, I just thought that was kind of clever, too, like throwing those little pleasure things in. Mm-hmm. He's not denying them, you know, but he's also not, like, against denying them, you know? And then, like, then later on, like, the sex scene is very much oh, yeah. uh, a transition point for his character very and his primal. relationship. He, at that point, starts to become very much selfish isn't quite the right word i don't think like because that implies it's him doing it and i I think it's like partially him being i think it's partially him being influenced by yeah the cult slash everything that's going on i totally agree with that because that is it's not really him choosing to do it but it, it results in a selfish action without a doubt but i think those are those moments that they put in this film that if you're picking up on it it's like yeah that's it's good those are cues Mm-hmm. And yeah. then you get to the eating meat. Oh, yeah. All of that. Like, mm-hmm. that's huge in this film. And they, the way they set it up makes total sense. It's played out. It's, it's well done, the way I look at it. I'll go ahead and say this early on, too. There's some scenes that are set up by the score in this film that I thought was really good. Some of the synth, I think, not necessarily misdirection, but there are certain scenes that don't feel as ominous as they should. But it leads to that because of the way the score sets mm-hmm. it up. I'm like, I like this. This is well done. It's not in your face, but it, it makes sense for the scenes it's in. So, I mean, we talk about a certain type of art every week with film. Mm-hmm. I know that we both enjoy many different forms of art. You know what one form of art I don't fucking understand is? High photography. Oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> I don't know if his shit in this movie is supposed to be good or not. I've never understood. <sighs> I, and then I'm not saying yeah, that it's bad. Know. Like, 
I understand that some photography is absolutely beautiful. I think it's absolutely beautiful. But if I go to like a photography exhibit, I don't know what the fuck I'm looking at. No, 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 no. At that point to me, and the way I look at art in general is it's very subjective no matter who's looking at it. Mm -hmm. You can have all the disagreement in the world you want, but it's not objective. (laughs) No one's absolutely positive about that. Even the photographer, right? Mm -hmm. Their vision can change. Their opinions can change. And as a viewer, (laughs) you know what I mean? So that's already a conundrum here. Anyway, that's how I look at art in general. It's like I'm not an expert on it. I don't claim to be. I can give you my opinion, Mm -hmm. and that's about it. But it's still just one of those things that it's always yeah. confounded me. Like, it's the same thing with like high fashion and all that stuff mm-hmm. too. It's like, uh... and even that I get a little bit just because right. I used to watch a lot of fucking trashy fashion based reality TV. If you're in that world, I get it. That's your shit. That's like your thing. I get it. I understand it, but it's not mine. But I don't so. understand it. <laughs> say, but it's not mine. I get it. That's a part of your your thing. I'll leave it be. I even feel like if it was like paintings, I could have weighed in at least a touch. Right. Like I know a little bit about art history and appreciation and stuff like that. But once again, I'm not an expert in any of that stuff. Maybe what I'm getting at is I'm curious to hear other people's thoughts. Like people that know photography, I'm curious to think of what they think of the shots that were shown of in this movie. I think that's If that makes sense. I think that's a solid point too, because if you're going to use that medium in a film. You should be showing good examples of it, right? I would hope so. So for those who are photographers, <laughs> chime in. Yeah, I'm mostly, I'm curious because I don't, I don't know the medium. No, I, I mean, I thought the photography itself looked good. I mean, but that's a subjective term. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's about it, as far as I can go. It looked fine good? to me. Looked, all right. I mean, I would have been happy if I got that shot. But I also would have been happy with a lot less quality shot oh, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not trying to capture that quite of an emotion out of people, but I get it. You know what I mean? That's a good question. Either way, I guess, even though I don't know if his pictures are good or not, apparently Brooke Shields thought that Whoa. she could fucking, I mean, I think she made her own fucking Blue Lagoon on the seat there. Probably. Yeah, yeah. She's like, I hadn't said that since high school. And I think we all know what she meant by that. When she her sat character. down, did you think she was just going to start blowing him right there? I was like, you know, if it happens, it happens. I got time. Especially with the look he got on his face for a second. Yeah, But yeah. then the camera pans down and she's just still sitting there looking at the photo. Yeah, and that's I'm okay. Like, that's fine. Oh, okay. You're not blowing him. Whatever. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Some of that stuff, what I'll it put leads the lotion to, away. which is really cool. This is where Ted Raimi is on the train mm-hmm. and their murders, which I was like, okay, they're going there with this stuff. And I'm not mad at it. I mean, some of the CG is not bad. I was about to say, this is where we bring up the CG gore. Yeah. Hasn't aged the best. No. Not the worst, though. But here's the thing. What I appreciate with this movie's CG gore, as compared to some other movies' CG blood and gore, they're trying to be interesting with it in this movie. If you're just using CG blood and gore to replace practical blood and gore because you don't know how to do practical blood and gore and you don't want to hire somebody to do practical blood and gore, but you have a digital effects artist's friend who you didn't pay enough to actually finish off the effects in this movie because we've seen movies that look kind of like what I just described. we've, We've talked about that too. Then like, that's shitty. If you're doing it because holy fuck, you can't spend an entire week setting up trying to get this effect shot right because what you're doing is insane, then yeah, go for it. And I think that's where the blood and gore, the CG blood and gore in this movie 
comes through. Yeah, and it's not bad at all. Because they're using it to do interesting things. They're doing, like, the camera through the dude's fucking head. They're doing Ted Raimi's eyes coming out of his fucking skull while the camera's whipping around and shit. Quite possibly my favorite digital effect in the film is in this sequence. Mm. It's like right after, you know, he gets his head smashed, Ted Raimi, that is. Even the blood spray they get Mm -hmm. was really good. Like, they got him good with that one. Is after the dude gets hooked in the cocks. Oh, yeah. Is the wife of Ted Raimi's mm-hmm. character where she gets her head literally lopped off and you watch it roll and then you get the pan out of her eyeball. Right. And then the head's like, man, that was good. That was actually really good. And I didn't mind that. Right. As long as it's not boring. Yeah. You're doing something right. It was clever. It was unique. I don't think I've seen it quite like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not mad at it. This is one of those little bits where it feels kind of lopsided. Mm-hmm. Because it's ridiculous that she's able to be decapitated by a hammer. Oh, yeah, well, of course. And that's something you'd expect to see in, like, I don't know, Tokyo Gore Police. Yeah, like, the amount of... Well, well once again, the, talking about who the director is, I'll go ahead and say, because of that movie Versus, yo, <laughs> yo. Yeah. That's... I had a feeling that that might be some of the, the ends, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, he plays up the level of violence a little comic book stylish. And he gets to kind of have fun with that in some different places in the movie. He does. But the problem is, is the in-between feel kind of generic slasher? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with that. And I'm going to go so far as to say, like, I feel like the chase in the meat factory is studio. Yeah, that does feel like studio. Nothing about that feels like the rest of the movie. No, it feels more like a thriller, slasher-ish, more than anything. Yeah, and I'm like, ah, I could have done without that. But, I mean, it, what it's setting up, though, is just the meat plant. Yeah. Where he works and all that stuff. That's all they're really doing. That sequence plays out pretty long, too. Right? It feels completely like filler. I agree. And it feels completely like old school slasher, which is not what the interesting parts of this movie are. No, 100%. It's um, kind of dumb. It, it, yeah, I mean, it is. And because it's not really believable. Like, you're not just going to walk in a pack and plant and put on a suit and walk around, take pictures about somebody like, what the fuck are you doing, guy? Yeah. yeah. Come on. Especially in New York. Maybe walk around. Like, if you just walk into somewhere and you act like you belong there, strangely enough, people don't usually question you. Right. I mean, guess what? When you start taking pictures, you're suddenly acting like you don't belong. Come on, dude. Yeah, that's pretty obvious in those facilities. I even side-eye people taking, like, Instagram pictures. You know what I mean? Like, And not because, like, yeah. come on. But, like, even, like, but still. fuck you doing taking a picture here? Like, this is a public place. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, <laughs> come on, man. But I was going to say, I know this film is supposed to originally, I think, be shot in New York. But then they switched it to L.A., and it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. But I was going to say, regardless, in any one of those two cities... Someone's going to notice. <laughs> so I don't know why they didn't just make it L.A. when they had to do that anyway. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. The story works for cities. In general. The implication in the end of the short story is that... It's happening all over every city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which that has a whole different significance. But in this context, I try to think of it as New York, even though it looks totally L.A. <laughs> given. Just because of the subways, it makes a lot more sense. While we're kind of talking about it, the other things that feel like the studio to me is the two-stage setup of the final fight. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. I kind of feel like 
especially knowing that this director was a fanboy to an extent of Barker's work. Like it was probably a little bit more originally supposed to be one slightly longer fight leading into something closer to what we actually get at the end of the story. Good point. Okay. Rather than the like sort of weird build up, kick him out of a train. (laughs) Yeah. We're safe for a little bit. No, you're not. That feels totally fucking later. Yeah. (laughs) That was I agree, with, I agree with that. Action beat. 100%. 100%. But everything within that fight felt like good. the director. Yeah, I was going to say, that was his vision. Even though... The layout of the fight, had, I don't think was. No, 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 no. But the way he shot it, he's like, I'm going to do it my way. If we're going to do it. I have a feeling that scene might have been toned down. I think what happened... This is like purely conjecture, by the way, for anyone listening, but... Like, I kind of feel like what happened to Homeboy's body getting sort of disemboweled during the fight was probably supposed to happen to more of the bodies. Like, that's why you put that fight in that that spot. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's bodies everywhere. But if you're trying to make it more appealable to a wider masses, you're going to put some gore in there for the horror people. Yeah, yeah. But you're not going to go all out crazy oh, man. cuckoo because it's already a fucking crazy scene, right? It really is. Like this, that duel is up there with like Texas Chainsaw Massacre it's 2 duel. wild. Yeah, I like it. But it, when you think of the setup, it's okay, holding got, back. Could have got gruesome, like really, really gruesome. I, I 100% agree with you there. And of just, of course, the fact that they didn't go cosmic horror. Yeah, that's another good point. Even though there's sprinkles here and there in it, you know it. If you've seen it, you know it. Yeah. They could have went full on weird at the end. Big time, but they didn't. And that's okay, you know? Which, you know, I'm not necessarily mad at either. I mean, it's setting up certain things, and I still got the feel of, like, some of the gothic horror that Clive Barker's known for. Like, Mm -hmm. just at this point in the film, because we're already at the end at this point. Oh, Maya's entire character also feels like studio. Oh, 100%. She's not even in the OG right. short story. But I mean, you can add in new characters and, that's and okay. adaptations and, and have that's it okay. not be studio. Right. But that kind of love interest who only serves to being a sacrifice, essentially. A sacrifice at the end, once again, feels like a generic studio offering if right. you're going to add in a character. No, you, to you're story. absolutely right. Because when you're trying to adapt this story, it's like, how much do you 100% play into it? Because I mean, it's a pretty basic story. If you're playing into this 100% Barker-ish, then it becomes a homoerotic thriller between Mahogany and 100%, Leon, right? <laughs> the short story, the thing I chuckled at the most of it is Leon's character. Most of his spoken dialogue or quotes are fuck it. Fuck it. Yeah. Everything's just fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, all right, man, I got you. Fuck it. But for sure, for sure. What I thought was interesting, because they don't really allude to it. I mean, they don't spell it out, I should say, in the film, even though you can kind of put it together if you've read the story, is that Mahogany's character is, you can tell he's been doing it for a while. He's got these weird fucking growths on his chest, and he's been slicing them up for a while. I'm still back and forth on, for the film, whether it adds to it to show that and then never explain it, or whether it detracts to show as much as they did and then never explain it. Uh, that's a good point. I I think the only way that you can, you know, try to justify some of that stuff is his train ticket, the story, his condition. In the OG, the butcher, Mahogany, is dying, essentially. Like, he's getting older. He's been doing it for a while. He actually wants to take up an apprentice. 
mm-hmm. and teach him everything that he knows so that way he can hand it off to somebody and just live out the rest of his days or whatever until he dies or what have you. It's kind of alluded that that's happening in this film, but it's not a direct, like, no, uh, Mahogany's not wanting to hand it down to him. It just a, so happens to be that's the, the transfer of power or whatever. That's that a dynamic. much more hostile relationship. Right, 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 right. Because it's already been determined. Mm-hmm. That's the fate of these two characters, whether they realize it or not. Yeah, and everything at the end, as much as it gets spelled out, it gets spelled out still in a very, very nebulous and like wide open way. Yeah. Because uh, even the conductor seems to implicate that Bradley Cooper is even more special than the conductor is because Cooper kind of innately feels these things. Mm. Yeah. Like you knew just uh, what to do. I'm jealous of you. <laughs> or I envy you. That's what he says. Yeah, he does. It is an interesting, I don't want to say dynamic, but there's a cast to this. You know what I mean? Like, there's certain levels that these characters have with the fathers or elders or however you want to mm-hmm. attribute them as because the conductor seems like he's got some strengths to him too that we don't know about necessarily, but he's not as privileged as Bradley Cooper's character who takes on that butcher role. So it's, it's interesting, man. It's a, it does remind me a lot of like some Hellraiser stuff, the way this story unfolds. And like you said, this cosmic horror element that, Because you're already caught up in it, it doesn't matter what the fuck you do in it. Well, okay, so... It's kind of predetermined. We keep sort of bouncing back and forth between the book and the movie, too. The movie really doesn't have any cosmic horror. It's said that we have to do this to maintain the balance. They don't explain what the balance is. No. They don't explain... The thing I got out of that little dialogue that they said is that it's more like these are before man, so this is like a, a different species of... Yeah. Right? So it's not coming from the cosmos. It's more like this is a species that has always been here, predates it. It's just they have a different relationship with... And we have to make sacrifices to them for some reason. To separate the two. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this is the compromise we've made. We're going to feed them, keep them in this underbelly. And if you just watch the movie, you don't understand why can't we kill them. Right. Because that would make sense. Like, yeah, why can't we just annihilate them? (laughs) The short story explains that. Because you find out who they serve. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like the fathers serve the elders, like the eldritch, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's basically the fathers, the, the fucking, the cannibal, the chuds. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They eat human flesh because it gives them immortality. They need to be immortal so that they can forever worship basically like uh, an elder god. Right, exactly. It's an Eldritch Abomination, like a, a Lovecraftian Eldritch Abomination. That's exactly what I was thinking. That entire storyline's like lining up with H.P. Lovecraft stuff. And it's in order to keep these deals going that they made to make these cities prosperous. And it's implicated that every major city has something like this going on. And this just happens to be the New York one. I know, it's pretty wild. That raises some really interesting ideas and concepts for all those cities that you could play with if you wanted to. Because they each have their, their own story, their own fathers, and what have you. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. <laughs> so I love this story. Oh, I think it's a I really love Mid- interesting like, story. The short story, the movie is great. It's a wonder I actually don't reread them both more often. Part of the reason I was drawn to it is we keep mentioning Cosmic Horror. It reminds me of another Lovecraft short story called Pickman's Model. In Pickman's Model, I, was there a Masters of Horror made after Pickman's Model? Do you know? 
The story. I mean, maybe, but I don't know. They probably would have updated it, but I said they might have the given original, it a different name. Yeah, the original story is there's a guy who goes to interview this local artist who makes these extremely detailed and true to life yet somewhat horrific and grotesque paintings of these underground creatures and they're sort of set into the backdrop of everyday life in i think it's set in providence it's okay. not one of the ones yeah. that's set in like a fictional town i think that's one of the ones that's set in providence if my memory serves me correctly and the guy as he's interviewing him and gets to know pickman better and better he ends up discovering through the course of the short story that they're so realistic because they exist. The guy is probably in league with them in some way, or at the very least has an entrance to their lair where he sometimes stakes people out so that they can like be devoured by these things and <laughs> he can observe them in life to be able to get the details right yeah. for his paintings. Yeah, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Though. I mean, shit. But that's kind of this movie, right? I Yeah, I would say... It definitely echoes that. Right? Yeah, yeah. But once again, I know it's one of those things we've talked about. No matter how original an idea might sound, it's usually borrowed from something else. Mm -hmm. Whether it's intentional or not, it, here we are. <laughs> you know. But it's still a, a unique twist regardless. Like It's its own kind of um, entailment of it. So Bradley's dazed walkout after he got strung up. Now we're just jumping way the fuck around. Yeah, yeah, yeah but matter. still, but still. The implications of the way that scene plays out as he gets out of there, like that whole meat factory is in on it, aren't they? Oh, yeah, you would think. It's like literally underneath the subway or that layer or whatever the hell. That he and got none of them in. bat an eye. No, they just... To him. Yeah, walks out. Which makes the chase scene earlier in the meat factory even more dumb. And you realize there were no stakes to that, and they knew what was going on the, the entire, entire time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. For the greater good. <laughs> I didn't like that scene one bit. I tuned yeah. the fuck out. I was like, this does not feel like the rest of this movie. I have seen this scene. Guess what? There's still 35 minutes left in this movie. Oh, <laughs> there was one sequence I wasn't a big fan of either. I think it's immediately after that where he shows up to Maya's apartment, Leslie Bibb. Mm. He goes directly to the bathroom. I mean... We get it, right? He's had this traumatic experience. And then when he comes out, some of his delivery is super flat. He's like, no, sleep. <laughs> like, uh, Yeah, yeah. It was kind of weird because I got what they were going for because right. that was the part where he was starting to really become under control of what was going on. But it was weird. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of that sequence. But for the same reasons, like, I understand what they were trying to do and what they were trying to express in the context of his character and their dynamic, whatever. But it still felt like, ugh, I wasn't a fan of that. It's not a knock on the film, but, eh, I could have done without that. So something I can't believe we haven't brought up yet, fucking stripping the corpse. That Dude. was brutal. That was cool as shit. Man, <laughs> there were some things in this... That was definitely one of them where I totally forgot. I was like, man, I don't remember this film being this fucking brutal. And that looked like mostly practical effects. Yeah, there's some good stuff in this film, man. The oh, only way oh, that's man. worse is if they were alive. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. But still, it's, it makes you squirm. There is one scene, I don't care how many times I see it, it's still going to make me like, ugh, goddamn, is the scene where Jurgis is strung up in the mm -hmm. car, you know, mm -hmm. the 
and Leslie Bibbs character finds Amaya and she tries to yank him off of it and then drops him. Back like, down. Oh goddamn! <laughs> Every time, dude. Every time. Okay. Oh. In the, in those that weird whole last sequence, not weird, fucking awesome whole last sequence with caveats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one of the parts that weirdly gets to me is when he throws the hammer at her. Oh, good. Gosh. And gets her in the back of the leg, like. I heard like a mother. I've played football and caught a fucking helmet right there oh, that before. Shit sucks. I know almost exactly how much that hurts. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, I feel for her in that moment. Oh, I caught a hairline fracture from somebody hit me like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know, it sucks. Yeah, fucking hammers. And that suck. hammer is like, I know I'm exaggerating, but it's it's like his Thor's hammer hitting you in the back of the leg. All right, we've talked about it a little bit, but that duel way up there in my list of oh, fucking duels. Good, man. But it's got both high sides and really low Weird downsides lows, yeah. to me because I love the camera movement in it. Yeah. Like everything good. direct the director's doing with the action. And I don't know how he managed to blend that 2008 CG as mm. well as he did mm. with the moves inside and that's outside the train. Yeah. But some of that's editing too, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, everybody who worked on that, yeah, they did a good job. That was all fantastic. They need to hire a different fight choreographer. Agreed. It should be really fucking cool that they're both wearing the armor or the steel mesh aprons and wielding knives. Like with that director's camera movements, if you would have had fucking sparks coming off their chests and shit. They had ample opportunities to do it. There's a few strikes, but it was flat. Because it's flexible, you have an opportunity to show why the hammer is a good weapon because it's still going to do damage to Bradley Cooper even through the armor. So that makes Vinnie Jones even more dangerous in the beginning. You get to see the way that it blocks knives, which makes it the last half of the fight. It amps it up when Bradley Cooper gets his armor ripped off, but none of the choreography played up any of that. I don't know. (laughs) There was a moment, though, in that sequence... That's like when he throws the punch. Well, I was gonna say no. Well, no, but <laughs> do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, but no, it's when that fucking blade goes to his oh, forearm. Yeah. I'm like, that's one of those moments. I don't care who you are. You could see the panic in his face too. So he played it up well. But then, of course, he gets yanked up and it becomes disengaged. But for that brief moment, it was in. I was like, oh, I feel you, brother. <laughs> that sucks. I fucking lost it. When Bradley Cooper grabbed that cut off arm. Oh, yeah, yeah, I hit him. I was like, through it at Vinnie Jones's face. <laughs> oh, that's one of those moments. It's like, I get it, but I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. It's good. I mean, it, it gets him out of that moment, but I'm like, he threw a punch. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he did. That's funny. It is a bit of that dark humor, too. Some of the wire effects on their super strength as the. Supernatural effects overtook them was, eh. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of wire effects, but I get it. Like, when you want to show super strength, there's only so much you can do. So. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, overall, the sequence itself wasn't bad. The disembowelment was like, whoa, that was gnarly. Mm-hmm. I like that. Even the practical blood that was coming down looked pretty decent. Vinnie Jones's end looked good. Oh, yes, it did. I thought it looked really good, actually. Megan's end was... I mean, it was good, I, but it. it was telegraphed as fuck at that point. Like, as yeah, the she second had, she yeah. got on that train, you knew she was done It for. was done. Yeah, she was a sacrifice. She sacrificed herself. That's obvious. I'm more surprised that they didn't find a way to make Bradley Cooper be the one to do it. Yeah. I did like, 
how that was kind of set up, you know, in the film and in the short story, there are differences. There is a similarity, which I'm glad they kept in, and that was the ripping out of the tongue. Mm-hmm. I was glad they did that. They didn't give him the line, though, did they? The you'll serve in silence? Mm, I'm trying to think what they said to him. There was something to that effect, though. There was I'm something not, close to it. but Right. I mean, of course, I didn't write down what the hell uh, the short story said, but there's allusions to that. Mm-hmm. You're like, you'll serve. I don't know if they said quite like in silence, but they said something of that magnitude. But when the driver does rip the heart out, I was like, okay, that's pretty obvious. But that's still in the moment, if you look at it in the context, that's like, if you haven't already figured out your fate by now, that's that. Like, that's a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And in the moment, it's like, that's a stark reality for anybody. Now, the short story, once again, this still doesn't make that much sense. Why he would suddenly, other than the fact that there's been an obvious supernatural presence gradually possessing him through the movie, mm-hmm. it still doesn't make sense that they would kill his girlfriend and he works for him. In the short yeah. story, he meets the Eldritch Abomination. You know, that's a solid point. And he man. gets driven mad. That's a solid point. That does feel, now that you say that like that, that's totally studio. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> 100. Let's just be real here. Yeah, because in the short, the guy, like... He's like, okay, you know, it makes him fall in love with the city. I was about to say, it's a weird fucking dark comedy about him falling in love with the city by seeing in all of its fucking faults. Right. And that's the thing, like, going back and reading it, seeing how the guy was from Atlanta, he had this idea, which most people do, of New York or any major city, right? Well, and this was old New York once again. Exactly. You, yeah, exactly. Good point. And... He moves there, he's living there for like three months, and starts to see like the veneer come off. We've already alluded to like the murders, just all the crimes, prostitution, you name it, just the depravity of the city. Once again, when they had to move locations to filming in L.A., why didn't they just change the city to L.A.? Because you already aren't making this a period piece and using old New York the way it was in the story. I agree. Which makes more sense for the way the story is supposed to play out. Yeah, yeah. And, like, if you go L.A., you can still use, like, real-life Skid Row. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And, like, I don't want to try to demonize those people. No, but of course not. But there is, is a is. section that you can use in a story like this if you wanted to show what the true heart of the city where dirty meets the wealthy interact. Hello. <laughs> like, and you have to shoot in that city anyway. Might as well. To, yeah, use it to your advantage if you're going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. I agree. But what I did like about the story that made it make sense, which we talked about already, was the flip that Leon Kaufman has in the short stories. He just happens to be a passenger on that train, the midnight meat train. You know, he's he not has, even searching for it. No, he just stumbles upon that train. You know, he has his destination, of course, but he just happens to be on it at the same time that the butcher mahogany is, you know, doing his thing. And. There's a switch that happens because he falls asleep. He even says, as he's like fading in and out of sleep because he had been working that night, you know, he's already tired as is. He's got a 30, half an hour ride, whatever. He thinks he hears one of the car doors slide open. He thinks he hears somebody getting drug off. He's too tired to even open his eyes to look. And then when he does come to, the kid is missing. He fades back out and then he starts hearing those chopping sounds. Mm. And that's when he wakes up. And he says that the next cart over, the window was like sealed off, but his interest got the best of him. And he was just hoping there was a little sliver he could peek through. And when he did, 
he witnessed what was happening and he went to hiding and uh, he kind of comes to, or at least he, he realizes at that moment that he's in a pool of blood and that's when he freaks out and panics and right. hides and all that stuff. And it's even alluded to like the driver and the butcher actually talked, which is interesting because they were having a dialogue. They were joking on the first train cart because Kaufman, Leon, what that is, was hiding in the other one. And then the murdered, it was happening on the different one. Mm-hmm. And when he stumbles upon the crime scene, I suppose if you want to call it that, then all that shit happens. They have their interaction. Kaufman, he gets this weird confidence in himself. And he's like, fuck it. He's like, yeah, I'm going to die here. Or I'm going to die up the road. <laughs> so he winds up killing Mahogany, and Mahogany which is interesting because Mahogany was kind of like, he was cool with it yeah. in a weird way. You know, and then that, like we were mentioning earlier, so once the train stops and these creatures come on board, these creatures aren't like the ones we see in the film. They're more humanistic in a, in a way, almost akin to The Descent. It reminded me a little bit of The Descent, but the way they were talking about those creatures, still very human-like, but they had this cave-like quality, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then they said, you know, once they were feeding, they actually talked to him, and then he stepped off in one of the father's... I guess talked to him, I suppose, and then ripped out his tongue and did all that stuff. And then he knew, like, he, that was his new fate. <clears throat> That's what I got to do now. And he's like, I'm good at it, I guess. I can't tell anybody about it anyway. I mean, I can write, but right, I but don't want them to take my fingers. I too. thought that was interesting. Like I said, there were still some some interesting ties from this film, but of course, studio, you have to do something different, introduce different characters. The detective character, she just kind of ties in that cult-like element to it. Yeah, she's frustrating until you find out why, and then you're like, okay, she just works for him. Yeah, she's just an agent of all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, which makes think, sense for the butchers, too, at the plant. I think, once again, works a little bit better, though, once you find out that there's an actual eldritch abomination and not just fucking trogs. Essentially, yeah, and it's like, ah, okay, I get it, I guess. Okay, this is another one of those movies where I was sitting there stoned, and I'm like... This is a pretty decent adaptation. Clive Barker, amazing artist. As we've mentioned before, even if it's not intentional, usually really good art lends itself to multiple interpretations. I think this story is an indictment of capitalism. I can totally see that. Especially with the way that the movie bookends it all. If this movie is life from birth to death, then you're born into this system where your ambition condemns you to having to hurt and tread upon others that are just being fed into the grinder to keep the city going that's only helping those at the top. It's completely inverted. They're technically <laughs> at the bottom in this, but I but that's exactly symbolic because of Makes sense. of who they are and how they right. amass their power. Most of his short stories mm-hmm. in, in this catalog were written when, like, 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. roughly. Makes sense, given the time period with capitalism coming out of major wars, you know, coming into this new era of economics, global economics on top of it. So there's this sentiment about capitalism. It is still happening now, you know. In his life as an artist, it's not about his actual talent, but more about who you know. Exactly. It's like, how do you sell yourself? Who do you have to cut out? What do you have to agree to to go up the ranks? It's quite literally he has to be able to sit there and stand by while humans suffer. He has to be able to watch rather than intervene when humans suffer. I know we've already mentioned the cult-like aspects of this film too, but 
Another film that it reminded me slightly of is Starry Eyes as well. Mm, yeah. You know, because she's trying to reach a certain What's <clears throat> level. What's the cost of fame? Right. And so there's a parallel to that. There's a cost essentially at play. Are you willing to, you know, pay that cost? Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a good take on it. I can totally see that with capitalism. And he manages to move up the ladder to the point where he has to keep quiet. He's in his clean business suit doing their dirty work. There's a couple of things too. It makes me wonder, you know, using meat, so to speak, too, as as a metaphor perhaps for other things. Mm -hmm. So there's that. I mean, you can't help but notice too, like with the gothic themes and some of the BDSM stuff, this is a part of what he likes to put in his story. Yeah. There's that. But I think that's all interesting because it's him. It's his personality. He's putting in these stories. And I like them because they're very humanistic, you know? Like there's still this very primal feel to a lot of these characters, or at least this transformation they go through. How much of the Books of Blood did you read? Not very many, man. Just a few short stories. I can't remember which ones exactly. It's been a little while between what I read today and when I first got the book. Just him saying that he was searching for the heart of the city reminds me there's another short story in the Books of Blood called In the Cities, the Hills. Okay. That's literally about two cities coming to life and basically becoming Voltrons made of (sighs) their citizens. Oh, shit. And, like, something goes wrong with one of them and, like... This city slash Voltron of 10,000 people creating this giant that's wandering the countryside, like, collapses and just becomes a fucking gnarly (laughs) mass of mangled bodies. And Well, I look forward to reading that. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds interesting for sure. (laughs) Hell yeah. Booting is like the heart of the city. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm like, because you turn the page in the book and you have a much, you know— it makes me wonder, I mean, you, you probably have a better idea than I do, like how much of these stories are tied to a larger universe? If there is one of sorts mm-hmm. with him, I don't know. I think it's one of those things where technically some of the stories could probably exist in the same universe, but there's not many direct yeah, connections. That's kind of what I was wondering. He's like, maybe it's just a little bit of a reach, or maybe it's just one of those things like, I'm just going to connect this little piece from a different story. I think it's one of those things where like, there's no reason why some of these couldn't exist in the same yeah, universe, yeah. but they don't explicitly exist. No, in maybe, the same maybe it's more thematic mm-hmm. perhaps. Yeah. Which is fine. But regardless, like, I know we've been talking about doing this film for a while and shit a long time. Yeah, it has been quite and by a while, it's probably like a few years. Three years. (laughs) Yeah. So I am glad we tackled it because once again, it definitely has the fingerprints of Barker all over it. But of Mm -hmm. course, not only because it's based off a short story, but some of the themes still, you know, resonate. Look, it's a pretty good adaptation when it comes down to it. I honestly think so. I know we've already said that. I'm bummed about the way they changed the ending and the way that they try to make it feel like a slasher at some of the middle points of the movie. Right. But But, I mean, we kind of get it because of what we already mentioned. I don't know how many times, but when you have studio stuff happening, you're not always going to get the vision you want, you know, Mm -hmm. just the way it is, especially with that kind of money thrown at this film. Yeah. $15 million is not... Chump change. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. So with that being said, though, I still enjoy this film. It's not one I would like watch all the time, but if it were on, I like I might get sucked into it for a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, because I do know there's some pretty brutal moments in this film. Yeah, there's some cool fucking scenes in this movie. For uh, sure. Even though I think it shows like an hour 40 something odd minutes. I think honestly, the film clocks in more close to like an hour 35, mm-hmm. you know, so that's still not too bad. The pacing's not too bad. It has its moments 
we've already talked about some of the scenes where like, eh, could have done without. I didn't know how to bring this up. It kind of is partially just the director's own visual style. It doesn't happen throughout all the movie, and it's part of what makes it feel uneven. But parts of this movie, how to explain this? <laughs> I mean this as a pejorative, even though I actually really like the movie that I'm about to reference. But this movie feels like it's kind of trying to be 13 ghosts at moments. Uh, okay. I can see that a little bit. You get what I'm saying? No, no, I know exactly what you're saying. I yeah. love 13 ghosts. <clears throat> right. But it does have its moments where it does feel like it. Mm -hmm. I agree. That's interesting. But because we do this a lot, you can't help but notice some of those connections or parallels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. I, know, I, I can't quite put my finger on how to describe it, but huh. it's just some of the stylized sections. I don't know. Something about it feels like it's a huh. different time period than when it came out. That's a good point. And because, they both uh, make it more interesting to watch and weirdly date it all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's a solid point. And just because we are products of time periods, it's still not bad, but we know because we've seen mm -hmm. we've seen a, a few of these now. I don't know if I have much else to say on it, though. No, no, like I said, it was interesting to, to rewatch this. A lot more brutal. Not necessarily supernatural in this film, but it had little not moments. Outright. No, no, it had moments. It definitely did. You can't deny that. And I thought that's what made it a little bit more interesting the second time through. But if I watch it a third or fourth time through, I'm like, I don't know how much more I can pick out of this film, <laughs> be honest. Right. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, after watching What's the first time. What's not straightforward is too vague to get anything else from. Solid point. Exactly. Which is what we get is what we've already mentioned before. And that's okay within you know the frames of this film. That's okay. Mm -hmm. hey, I'm, I'm not mad at it. I would recommend it for people who do enjoy like Hellraiser. And I will say this, I think it's better than Hellraiser 3, which I think. Yes, <laughs> I agree. But I would still say like, yeah, if you're a fan of that, I think this might be a good complimentary piece to maybe The Descent just because of mm. some of the elements of the creatures in it. Not necessarily because of the slasher element. Or Chud. Chud too, yeah. Yeah. Maybe even some cult films we've talked about before, mm -hmm. Starry Eye, stuff like that. So this is not a, a bad companion piece to other films in the genre. And a, I'd say probably a good party movie. Yo, yeah, yeah, because of the faces that people are familiar mm -hmm. with. Bradley Cooper's an Vinnie easy Jones. sell. Vinnie Jones, Leslie People Bibb. know Vinnie Jones because he's, like, he's the juggernaut, bitch. Yeah, like, dude, <laughs> how about Quentin Jackson? You want to see him right. fucking fight Vinnie Jones on a train? Are you serious? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, it has a moment. It's Ted Raimi right. once again. So some familiar faces. Stylistically, yeah, shot fairly well. Not bad for a first-time English language film for this director mm -hmm. either. So kudos to him as well. We don't know what we're doing next week. No, like I said, we've already <laughs> mentioned we were back in that boat again. But sometimes it's fun to be out in those kind of waters. I agree. So we're going to go figure that out. And until next time, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms, out. Hi, everybody. Tyler here. If you like the podcast, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us, or preferably over on Apple Podcasts, that'd be super cool as the entire world is ran on algorithms and we want to be all up in them. Uh, we highly appreciate it whenever you tell all your friends about us. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, want us to put eyes on your current independent horror project, you can always contact us, squirmcast at gmail.com, 
or you can contact us through our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Uh, scroll through our entire back catalog there, or click the links up at the top as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network uh, and would love it if you went and checked out some of our sister shows. Uh, the easiest way to keep track of things across the entire network is to go over to that website. That's earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. Uh, you can search for us across all the social medias. If you type in Fried Squirms, we should be what pops up. I'm not going to give you all those ads. So with all of that in mind, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, peace. <laughs>